Open your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We're getting near the end, you know? You can literally flip a page or two and you'll see the book's about to be over, chapter 12. So I think we've got three more weeks on this or so. But here's what I wanna do is catch you up if you haven't been with us through the series. I know we've got some new folks in the room. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's um, philosophical struggle with life. And here he is probably very late in his life, toward the end of his life. We're gonna get a clue of that, uh, chapter 12, how old he may be. But he's reflecting back on his life and he said, is there anything solid, substantial, meaningful, eternal value under the sun? And remember, under the sun just means life on this fallen, broken planet, this hard place to live. And he keeps coming to the same conclusion. It's all vanity. That word vanity means vapor. Means it's here and it's gone. Like literally in Hebrew, vapor of vapors, all is vapor. That's what Solomon keeps saying. Now the first half of the book, he makes his case. There's nothing under the sun that has true eternal lasting meaning. So don't look to your job for hope. Don't look to your family for eternal significance. Don't look to your hobbies or your pleasures or your comforts to find a sense of satisfaction ultimately. You're not gonna find them there long term. That's the first half of the book. Second half of the book is Solomon's proverbial wisdom. It's kind of like, well, then how now shall we live in a place like this where everything is vapor? Solomon's the master of the proverb, right? He wrote a whole book of those. So what we get in the back half of the book are all these proverbs that quite frankly sound really strange. Like, did y'all listen to what Hannah read earlier? Like, did I hear something about a snake charmer in there? I think I did. Like, what do we do with that? You know, in 2018 in our culture. Uh, here's the thing about Proverbs. And by the way, a lot of churches, when they do a series on Ecclesiastes, like they dig in for the first six or seven chapters, and then they skip to chapter 12, you know? <laughs> and they skip over all this stuff. And I think that's a shame because there's some deep wisdom in this for us. But you have to know how to interpret some Proverbs. Okay, so let me tell you a story. When I went to seminary, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I was taking my first preaching class. Now, you need to know a little bit about my personality, okay? My dark shadow side is I can be a performer, all right? I can really want to like, work for people's approval. And here I was going to seminary because I want to be a preacher. And here is my first preaching class, and I have all this pressure on me, my first preaching class of my dream to be a preacher. Am I actually going to be good at what I hope I'm going to be good at? You see, so there was all this pressure. Then you get in the first week and they tell you, your first sermon is going to be graded by your professor and evaluated by your peers. You've got to preach this in front of your fellow students. And I'm like, oh boy, now I'm really feeling it. And so he hands out the assigned passages and he says, everybody's going to get a proverb because we want you just to have one simple little clear thought of text. So everybody's going to get a proverb. And he starts handing these slips of paper with the proverbs on them. And I'm sitting there praying, God, please let me get Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know? <laughs> Give me a softball. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know, boom. You know? And I get, I get my proverb, and I'm, I'm looking at it, and uh, it, it, it says Proverbs 25, 16. That was my reaction, too. I, I don't, silence. You know, I don't know what Proverbs 25, 16 is. All right, you probably don't either. So I'm, I'm uh, flipping over. I'm like, okay, okay. Like, as soon as I get out of that classroom, Proverbs 25, 16, 25, 16. If you find honey... Eat just enough. Too much of it, and you'll vomit. <laughs> that was my reaction, too. Like, I was laughing. I went back in the classroom. I found the professor, and I said, excuse me, some numbers must have been transposed. 
I don't think you meant Proverbs 25, 16. I showed it to him in the Bible, and he just kind of had that snicker. You know? He was just like, you know, he saw it a mile away. And as soon as I came up, he was like, you must have gotten the honey and vomiting passage. I was like, yeah. I went home to my wife, and I said, what am I going to do with this passage? It's my first sermon. I got to be good, you know, all this, you know, human fleshly stuff. And she looked at the passage, and she just said, good luck. <laughs> then I looked up at God, and I said, why? You know, why? Now, here's what happened. Six weeks of studying that little proverb, okay? Kind of ridiculous, right? But, but that's what I did, six weeks. Here's what I learned. In the ancient Hebrew culture, honey wasn't just what you get at the grocery store in a little poo-shaped bottle, okay? I shouldn't use that word based on last week. <laughs> the little bear-shaped bottle, okay? That's not what honey is. Okay, honey was the richest, most tasty thing that they had. They didn't have, they didn't have coffee. They didn't have like you know all the delicious desserts that we have today. They didn't have chocolate. They had honey, honey. So the more I thought about that, I was like, oh, oh, he's saying. Here's what Solomon's saying. You're going to go along life, and there's sometimes you're going to come to something that tastes good, something that's going to tickle your fancy. It's okay to taste it. It's okay to eat it. But, but only eat just a little. Only eat just enough because too much is going to destroy you. If you give your life to the pleasures, you're going to be undone. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to vomit, you see. Now, I could preach that. The lesson for me was that there's oftentimes in these texts more than meets the eye. And so you get to snake charming and falling into pits and breaking through walls in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And I'm telling you, we're going to get something out of this by the power of the Spirit. Now, we might get less out of it because I've gone so long in my introduction. So let's actually jump in to, to verse 8. And you need to see the Proverbs that way. There's more here than meets the eye. That's, that's the whole point of what I'm trying to say. Verse 8, he who digs a pit may fall into it. And a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Here's what's going on here. This is the proverbial idea of your just desserts. Okay? Be careful with evil intentions. They will come back to bite you. In the case of punching through a wall, probably what's going on here is breaking through a wall to steal something. There's a serpent that had gone in the crevices of that wall, and it bites the guy. Sometimes that's going to happen. Digging a pit you know, to try to harm someone or trap someone, you're going to be the one that falls into that pit sometimes. Now, that was conventional wisdom of the time. Solomon, though, is going to put an Ecclesiastes juke on it. Hey, watch what he does in the next verse. Look at verse 9. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. Do you see what he just did there? Those, there there's, nothing, um, there's nothing sinister about quarrying stones and chopping logs. He's saying, yeah, it's true that you can have some evil intent and it'll come back to bite you, but isn't it also true that you're going to get hurt, wounded just by going about life and doing your job? Isn't it true that bad things happen to good people and there doesn't seem to be really rhythm or rhyme to it? Isn't that sort of Ecclesiastes, like in a nutshell? Normal jobs. Now, I don't think they had insurance back then. Okay, but if they did, Solomon was going to sell it. You know, in fact, think of Solomon, you know, in this book of Ecclesiastes is a little bit like the Allstate mayhem guy. You know, mayhem happens, right? And it doesn't matter if you've got good intent, evil intent, there's going to be times you're going to fall, you're going to trip, you're going to get hurt. Things 
happen. Now you go to verse 10, he's going to start to bring this to a, to a therefore, or a so what, so to speak. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So imagine chopping wood with an axe, a dull axe, okay? You, you can get the job done with a dull axe, but it's going to take you four or five times as many chops as if you would have just taken a little effort on the front end to get that blade sharp. So I think here's what Solomon is, is sort of saying, and in, in the back half wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Like that's the, the moral of the, the ax chopping. He's saying if you don't have a plan, and if you don't have the tools to get there, you're never gonna arrive. Another way to say it, the fool is the one who just goes out and starts chopping trees. Doesn't take the time to think about the job that needs to be done and prepare accordingly. Application for us. The wise man, the wise woman, are the ones who know what they want out of life and have a plan to get there. So let me ask you some really applicational kind of, you know, just put the application on the bottom shelf kinds of questions. Number one, do you want to have a great marriage? I do. But what's my plan for investing in it? What's your plan for investing in it? How are you sharpening the blade of the ax if you want to have a great marriage? Do you have a plan? Are you just out there kind of just, I'm just sort of chopping wood? How about this one? You want to be a great parent? Right? What kinds of tools do you need and where to find them? Guys, parenting is hard. It's harder than I thought it would ever be when I first started this. You know, some of you can identify with that as well. We want to equip you. We want to give you tools. We want to help you sharpen your saw. That's what these opportunities I told you about earlier are. That's what our resource center out here on the left is all about. Right? What's your plan? And do you have the right tools? How about this one? Do you want your walk with God to be vibrant and life-giving? How are you pursuing that? Or are you just out there saying, well, firing prayers here and there, reading my Bible on occasion? You're chopping wood with a dull ax. All right? That's the point of this proverb. Now, let me say this. Nobody becomes the person they want to be by just going out there and chopping trees nilly-nilly, all right? Growth is a collaboration between you and the Holy Spirit. I don't want to take anything away from the work of the Holy Spirit because transformation is his domain. But what you see over and over in scripture is the idea of th th there's a collaboration between you and the Holy Spirit. What it usually looks like metaphorically is the agricultural image that you see all throughout scripture. You ever thought about that? Bear fruit, the vine, the vineyard, there's all kinds, the farmer, you know, putting down seed. There's all kinds of agricultural images. And the idea is it's God that causes that seed to grow, but the farmer has something to do. The farmer's got to plant. The farmer's got to water. The farmer's got to get to work. So transformation is a, is a partnership. It's a collaboration between the Holy Spirit who brings the change and you who engages it, all right? Another way to think about this is you're not going to become the kind of person you want by sitting around and just binge-watching Netflix shows all the time. You know, there, maybe there's a place for that, but you're not going to transform on the couch. That's just not how transformation works. All right, you've got to engage. You've got to sharpen the ax. Okay, that's the lesson from the ax. Now we're going to get the lesson from the snake charmer. All right, I'm excited about this. Okay, I've never preached on snake charmers before. <coughs> Verse 11. 
If the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. Okay. Uh, forget whatever comes to your mind about snake charming because your picture is wrong in this context. Okay, so you're, you know, at least for me, I picture the little Indian guy with the big thing on his head with the little and the cobra coming out of the basket, all right, asking for money. That's not what this was. As best as we can tell, snake charming in the ancient Near Eastern culture uh, originated from Egyptian culture which would have had a huge influence on the Hebrews, both because of geography and also because of history. So in Egyptian culture, snakes were both feared and revered. Feared for obvious reasons, okay? Revered because they were thought to have spiritual power. By the way, isn't that interesting considering uh, Genesis chapter three? But all that to say is what developed were there were certain people in a town that were you know, a cross between a witch doctor and an extermination company. So if you had a snake in your home and you, you didn't want to touch it, you don't want to have anything to do with it, you didn't know how to handle it, you could call for the snake charmer, call for the, the snake uh, um, handler, so to speak, and they would come, they would know how to handle that snake safely, and then they would do a bunch of spiritual you know, voodoo stuff on your home to make sure that there wasn't any spiritual curse because that snake was there. Okay, now, here's the idea of Solomon's proverb with that context. If you're a snake charmer, and you're sitting at home in your hut, and the call goes out, snake charmer needed at 205 Main Street. Okay? If you just sit around and say, let me just finish the last three episodes of the season because it's really good, and then I'll go take care of the snake, by the time you get there, everybody's going to be dead, and you make no money. Application for us. Do you know who you're called to be? And are you out there doing it? Okay, you're not a snake charmer, but you're something else. You're, you're a business owner. You're a ministry entrepreneur, maybe. You're a mom. You're a dad. You're a grandparent. You're, you're, you're a neighbor to someone. You've been called to something. Like, who are the people God has called you to? What is the work God has called you to? And, and once you know that, and that's a whole process in and of itself, right? But once you know that, be about the work. Don't just let life go by you. Because if you just like, like, let, let life go by where you're sitting around on the couch, there's going to be a time that your someday I'll get to's become I wish I had, but I never did. And Solomon is sitting here, an old man, looking back on his life. He's saying, don't let your some days I'll get to's become I wish I had's. Get off the couch. Be about the purpose that God has called you to. And if you don't know your purpose, start praying. God, what have you made me to be? Who have you called me to love? Most times it's just about opening your eyes to the very people he's put in your life. He said, I'm to be about serving them. What good is the charmer if he gets there too late? What good are we living the purpose of our lives if we never engage the purpose of our lives? Now, I want to keep moving for the sake of time, and what I'm going to do is skip three verses for now because they're about our words, and we're going to come back to words with verse 20. So I'm going to put the next three verses with verse 20. So look with me at verse 15. Okay, we're skipping ahead a bit, but we'll come back to those verses. 
Verse 15, the toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Okay, this is a hard one to understand. This is, it's probably an exaggerated saying. So you and I today might say something like, um, that person is so lost they couldn't find their way out of a wet paper bag. In this culture, they might say, toil of a fool so wearies him, he doesn't even know how to go to a city. I mean, it's like he can't even get to the city. So probably what's going on here is you, you've got an agrarian society and you've got maybe a craftsman or someone making it and he, he, he's, so, he's not smart in his work, he's sort of foolish in his work and then he exerts all his strength just doing it he's got no strength left over to actually go to the city and sell his stuff, right? The city was the city's the, the commerce center. All right, so this is, this is about laziness. This is about foolishness. Um, I also think there's this idea of the treadmill. Lloyd used that illustration from the beginning of the series. If you don't know who you are and where you're going, you'll never get there. You'll just be walking a treadmill all your life, exerting a lot of energy with no progress. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you're going? Do you have a plan to get there? And are you moving forward on that plan? I think that's the big lesson of these first verses that we've covered in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Here's another application for us on this, you know, the fool doesn't know how to get to his own city. When you make poor choices, everything gets harder. Sometimes to the place that even relatively simple things become nearly impossible. So let's play this out a little bit. When you make poor choices in your work, in your marriage, in your walk with God, Things get a lot harder, sometimes to the place that even relatively simple things become nearly impossible. If you've been married for any length of time, okay, and, and Jody and I celebrated 17 years last May, if you've been married any length of time, you realize that there are some things in a marriage that are much harder than they should be. There, there become, over time, some topics that it's hard even to talk about. And if you like rise out of that a minute and just look at it objectively, like, why is it so hard for us to talk about this? Like, why is this so difficult for us? Trace it back. And this is what I did in my own heart. Okay, I thought about this this week in my own application. It's like there are certain things Jody and I struggled to engage with that seem to be so hard, much harder than they should be. And I, I walked back 10 years. I walked back 15 years. And I said some things or did some things that were foolish that fast forward now causes us to be pretty stuck. And it's usually a snowball effect over time. You see, th th that's true in your relationship with God. I mean, there's certain, you know, young people, I, I wanna just tell you this, singles, you know, it's not all of our application here is for married people. We've got a d good diversity around us. Singles and young people, there are some things in your life now, it's just a little bit of foolishness. The Lloyd's message last week, okay? And I'm just experimenting a little bit here. I'm just kinda dealing with this. It's not really a big deal. That will cause you over time to get to the place where just the simplest things like praying to God will become nearly impossible. This is the wisdom of Solomon warning us. Now what do we do with our little bit of foolishness? Take it to the cross. Allow it to be crucified with Jesus and allow redemption to be in your story. What do you do with the stuck marriage? Take it to the cross, as hard as that is. You know, this is how these things play out in our lives. And we've got to keep going, but I hope you feel the weight. I hope you feel the warning of Solomon. When you make poor choices, everything gets harder to the place where eventually even relatively simple things like going to a city 
or having a conversation with your spouse or praying to your Father in heaven becomes seemingly impossible. Verse 16 to 17, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad or child and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. I won't spend a lot of time here. Here's the big idea. There's enough at stake with your own choices just for you. If you're a leader, everybody in your wake is affected by your foolish choices or your wise choices. Think about, and we could apply this in all kinds of ways, you know. Uh, I'm not a big political guy. I, I mean, I, I read some headlines in the news, but, but I'll tell you, and, and I'm not just talking about what's happening in Washington. I'm just go broader than that. There's just some foolishness in leadership in our context and around the world. Can we just say that without me stepping on anybody's toes? This principle is being played out in our day, in our time, and it's been played out for thousands of years. When the leader at the top is making foolish, unwise choices or making foolish, unwise statements, it affects everybody. In the context that Solomon was writing, when the king was a fool, the land felt the pain. And that's literally true in an agrarian society. The land would not be cared for. The land would be overused. It wouldn't get the proper rest. It, crop rotation wouldn't happen. When the leader at the top's a fool, the land feels the pain. Now, get out of politics for a minute. Think about you. Who do you have influence over? Your wife, your kids, your husband. Maybe you're in the middle management in a company. Maybe you're the business owner. You know, maybe you, you're a Bible study leader. Maybe you're a small group leader. Your foolish choices, your wise choices, impact everybody that looks to you for influence. That's just true. And it's weighty. Weighty for me as I'm thinking about our church right now, right? But it's good to feel the weight because it takes us to the cross. It takes us to the point of saying, I need Jesus. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Every hour. I need Jesus. Yes, we do. Now, I want to keep going to verse 18 because I spent longer there than I needed to, but, I, but I, I wanted to say that. Look at this next one. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Indolence is a word that you don't hear that much anymore. It just means laziness. All right? Now, this fits the theme of the overall verses so far, right? What, what I think Solomon's kind of saying is, I know life is hard, but you got to get off the couch because if you just stay on the couch, nothing's going to get better. Entropy is the law of the land under the sun. Entropy is the law of the curse. Things are unwinding. Things are progressively getting worse. Uh, you buy a new car and you set it out in the field and ignore it, it's going to rust away and it'll be worthless after just a few years. You get married and you set it out in the field and ignore it, it's going to wind down and be worthless after a few years. You let your kids just sort of say, do your thing and be a passive parent, entropy takes its course. All right, this is, the whole purpose of this message is not a drive-by guilting. 
okay? But there's some sobriety here. There's some weight here in this text that I don't want us to, to miss. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Now think about that verse in the context of our whole creation. Adam and Eve, mankind, was given a particular purpose to glorify God and represent his rule across the earth. They stepped away from that purpose and pursued their own way, pursued their own pleasure, said, that looks good to eat, I'm going to eat it. The result of that is the entropy, the brokenness, the life under the sun that we're experiencing today, and we're a part of it. Here's the good news. Think about this. Jesus came to reverse entropy. That's what the resurrection is, y'all. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, physically, at that point in time, okay, at that resurrection day, Jesus in his physical body is saying that there, there's a pattern that I'm going to break. You see, it was like everything's decaying death, decay death, decay death, decay death, decay death in life. And now, as the New Testament points us, new life is emerging, and someday there'll be no more entropy because the curse will be rolled back. And there'll be only life. So what does this mean for us? Okay, We are called to be Christians. That means little Christs. We are called to give, to be a sign and to give a taste of life without entropy. Of life that's moving toward resurrection rather than decay. All right? So what does it look like for us? We must fight against entropy in our lives and in the lives around us. That means engaging in our community, place where it smells like death. We come in with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel of life, and we engage that there. Now Solomon's going to give you a really practical way that you can engage entropy and engage death in, in, in this next verse 19. And you're not going to think it is, but, but then I want to show you how it is. Look at verse 19. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Okay, I bet you never heard that verse preached before. <laughs> okay, let's talk about this, okay? Uh, there's more here than what it looks like, as is the case in Proverbs. Bread makes laughter is the literal translation of the first phrase. Bread makes laughter, if you go to Hebrew. Now, where do they get men prepare a meal for enjoyment? Well, bread represents more than just bread. It means a meal, Right? And enjoyment, laughter, same Hebrew word coming here. Now, keep going. Wine gladdens life. It would be literally a translation of the next phrase. So, bread makes laughter, wine gladdens life. He's talking about a feast. Okay? And how do we know this? I, I don't think you can be alone with a dinner roll and you're going to start giggling. All right, all right. But invite some friends over to a feast and you've got some good food, you've got some good drink, you're telling stories, you're laughing together, right? Now this, have you noticed in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has a thing for feasts? He keeps coming back to eat and drink and find joy in those things. And eat and drink and find joy in those things. And it's all in the context of community. It's all in the context of feasting. Now, this, this interesting phrase, money is the answer to everything, it's actually not, not what you think it is. It, it's not as difficult to understand if you put it in the context of the food and the wine. I think a, a help, more helpful translation might be money is the answer to both. Like Money's the answer to everything I just talked about. Now, we actually have some good exegetical evidence that that's exactly what Solomon meant because this Hebrew word that's translated everything is used four or five times in this very book 
to refer to the set of things that Solomon just talked about, not everything under the sun. So it's really, and I think exegetically, much more understandable and much more accurate to say, bread brings laughter, wine gladdens life, and you get both with money. Money's the answer to both. Money's how you get those things. It's money that makes it possible to buy the food and money that makes it possible to buy the wine. Now, think about this in the context of life under the sun. You work, you struggle, you toil all day long in a broken, difficult context under the sun. And then evening comes, the sun sets, you have an opportunity to sit, relax with the rest of your family. Maybe you have friends over and you taste delicious things and you are filled literally and emotionally, and you tell stories, and you laugh, and you get just a taste of something good amidst the struggle under the sun. Okay, meals are sacred, okay? So is community. It's one of the best things life has to offer. I came across this quote. Um, there's a book called Every Moment Holy by Douglas McKelvey, and it's a, it's, a, it's a collection of prayers, blessings, and liturgies for everyday moments in life, like waking up and having a cup of coffee or inviting friends over to dinner or celebrating a birthday or putting up a Christmas tree. And I read the one he wrote for having friends over for dinner. And let me read you a portion of this. This is so helpful in light of Ecclesiastes 10. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. A banquet points us to heaven. Interesting, that's the image we get of heaven in Revelation. It's a feast, it's a wedding feast. It's a celebration. That's what we're going to be doing. I think in all the real and tangible ways that that implies. It's going to be a celebration with friends. It's going to be laughter. It's going to be good flavors. It's going to be worshipful. All of it put together. Now, come back to your meal tonight or this week when you invite friends and family over or our picnic in 15, 20 minutes. Where did the food come from? Money had to buy it. Where did the drink come from? By the way, we're not having wine. I think we're having sweet tea. Pretty holy too. Somebody bought it. Where did the dining room table come from? Somebody paid for it. Where, where did, where did your, the roof over your head as you sit down for that meal with your family come from that keeps you out of the heat, keeps you out of the rain, keeps us out of the rain this afternoon? Somebody paid for it. Here's what he's trying to say. Amidst the frustrating life of vanity, we have these small, sacred moments in time. From a human perspective, it's money that enables those to happen. So don't be lazy. Go out and work, but then use your money to buy food, buy drink, and buy a dining room table. And invite people in. Literally. And figuratively, you see. We are to use our money 
to celebrate gifts of life and invite people around the table and say, you know what this points to? Just like Douglas McKelvey did in the quote that I, this points to the place where this is all that we're going to do. And that's why it tastes so sweet because we were made for this. That's how you share the gospel. That's a big way of it. Now, come to the picnic today because we're going to do this. Join a fellowship group because it's a weekly opportunity to do this. Let's be a family of faith together. I've got to go on for the sake of time. Let's look at verse 20. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. And in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound and a winged creature will make the matter known. All right, what's going on here? This is probably where we get the phrase, a little birdie told me. Okay, Solomon is reminding, literally probably is, Solomon is reminding us that our words can get us in trouble. Be careful when you say, when you criticize, when you curse someone, especially someone that has power over you or has a lot of resources over you. It's just good wisdom in a broken creation. Okay, the whole idea of the bedchamber in the sleeping rooms has nothing to do with anything other than that's the most private place. Like, you know, if you're ever going to have that conversation where you're just going to let loose about that guy at work or your boss, it's probably going to be like in the privacy of your own home, right? Because nobody can hear you. What Solomon is saying is, no, that has a way. That has a way. Even a bird of the heavens is going to take that out. So be careful with your words. Now, the, contextually, it's going to help to put it with the previous verses that I initially skipped over. Let's go up there. Man, I got to go fast with time. All right, let's do this. Verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end is wicked madness. Love that phrase. Probably shouldn't, but do. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. Here's how you might summarize all that Solomon is saying about your words. Your words contain the power of life and death. So how will you use them? We talked about this before. Words are not passive. They're powerful. They're active. They do things. Look back at verse 12 briefly. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the noun form. Words from the mouth of a wise man are grace. Guys, grace is the domain of God. And yet because we were made in his image, and I think part of that means given the complexity of our language, we have the power to give grace or the power to cut grace off in people's lives. And I don't mean that you know, spiritually, but I mean humanly. Humanly, we really do. Um, the power of words to encourage, the power of words to heal, the power of words to restore and bind up the brokenhearted is in your hands. It's yours. Another way to think about this, you know, in the words of uh, the uh, famous Professor Dumbledore, words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. He's saying this in the context of a fictional world where there are wizards who can do incredible things with wands. And Dumbledore is saying, you know what? The most powerful magic at our disposal is our words. Now, in the context of the rest of creation, our language is like magic, y'all. 
It's incredible what we can do with our words. That's a gift of God to be stewarded by us. You can use it for grace or you can use it to destroy others and destroy yourself. That's what verse 13 is. The lips of a fool consume him. What a word picture that is. The beginning of his talking uh, is folly and in the end is wicked madness. It's like one small little foolish word has a tendency to roll down a hill like a snowball until it creates an avalanche. And guess who's going to be sitting at the bottom of that avalanche? The fool who is the bottom of the mountain calling up. Curse you, mountain. Curse you, boss. Curse you, so-and-so. Your words have power of life and power of death. How will you use them? Now, let me review. I'm going to wrap up and then I'm going to pray. Solomon's life lessons from these verses. The wise man knows who he wants to be, where he wants to go, and has a plan to get there. He doesn't sit on his hands but moves toward his God-given purpose with focus and energy. He uses his money to create sacred spaces of generosity in life for others around a table. And he understands the power of his words for life and death. And he wields that power to bring life to the world around him in anticipation of the life that is to come. That's the wisdom of Solomon. And I want to close this service by praying for you because I care about you and I want you to have life and I want those things to be true of you. And this is going to take us, y'all, right back to the cross because this is not fully true of any of us. We all still play the fool sometimes. We want this. Like, we want to use our words. We want to engage life. We want to know our purpose. We want to live as heroes under the grand hero of Jesus Christ and the redemption of creation. We got to go to the cross. We've got to be empowered by the Spirit. And we've got to say yes to the call. So let me pray for us to that end. Our Father, where else can we go but to your grace over us, mediated through the one wise man who never played the fool? That's the only place we can go. Father, we look to your words for grace in our lives so that this message would not have a guilt effect on us, but would have an empowering effect on us. We go to the cross, and we go particularly to the one who is the word made flesh, and his word to us was grace. We come under that so we can feel a sense of restoration and renewal and peace. And now, Father, from this place of peace, from a place of remembering the gospel is true, remembering that we're restored through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can launch out in mission, in service, in, in words of grace our own, in engaging the hard things in life, like, like stepping into a marriage that's 
stuck or engaging teens that we feel so distant from or waking up to our call to be engaged in our walk with God more than we have been. We can only do that, Father, from a place of rest because otherwise it's just striving. So would you allow the gospel to just dig its way deep into our hearts so we can feel such wholeness and contentment in our relationship with you that we would have the energy to move out toward our loved ones and our neighbors. I pray that this body would know who they are and where they're going. I pray that they would not sit on the couch but would be engaged in the call of of their lives that you've put on them. I pray that they would use their money and their resources to buy food and drink and spaces and engage people around a table, literally and figuratively. And I pray that they would know the power of their words for life or for death and that they would steward that power for life. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand to your feet. A couple quick announcements before you go and I am, I'm going to send you out with a benediction. Um, I hope you're able to jump into our learning center. Don't just pick up your kids but linger. Talk to those volunteers. Thank them for what they do. Get to know them a little bit. I hope you're able to hang around for our, with our picnic. And to that end, we just need a little help. And I'm going to call particularly on our guys in the room, if you wouldn't mind. After I dismiss you, after the benediction, we need everybody to stack the chairs. We're going to push those over to the side. And then there's going to be some tables. And you know, Luke Luttrell and the other facilities guys will direct us how to do that. We just need to get those tables popped up in here. And everybody's going to go out, and you'll be getting your food out there. And then you'll come back in and eating in this space. And we're going to have the inflatables around the room. So give us a little time to get all this set up. Help us if you're able to. If you need prayer before you go today, we're going to have a couple right up over here. Also, I would love to pray with you as well. We want to serve you and help you wherever you are. Go with these words from James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. May that be true of Fellowship Bible Church by the grace of God that we would reap a harvest of righteousness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's enjoy lunch together.